Hey, everybody. Uh, glad that you tuned in again uh, to this episode of Beyond Sunday. And I have with us uh, today Pastor Billy Reeder, our pastor uh, from the Brentwood campus, and his wife, who also pastors on the Brentwood campus. And uh, you guys may not know it, but the number one contributor uh, to Billy's sermons and his uh, constructive critic is sitting right here to my right. So, Christy, thank you so much for joining us. You were a little reluctant, but here you are, and it's going to be much better with you here. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. Uh, so, Billy, let's just dive right in. Uh, Book of Jacob, we're going to call it from now on. We should. Uh, if you didn't see the sermon, uh, Billy's going to tell you something about uh, his name right now. Uh, yeah, so James is not the real name of James. It's a it's a kind of a, a snag in the translation process. Uh, his name's actually Jacob. Jacob's a Jewish name. James is not a Jewish name. It's highly Romanized or Englishized. And so uh, it's funny that we call one of the super apostles, one of the best apostles that we have by a, a name that's not even his. Right. And uh, this is just a translation error that goes all the way back to the 1400s. It sure does. Yeah. Um, we had some Latin manuscripts that looked like James, the from Jacob to James. And so John Wycliffe in the 1300s, he, he kind of translated it as James and it stuck. It just right. never got kind of fixed. Right. So when you get to heaven, you walk up to him and you say, hey, Jacob, He's going to give you a fist bump. It's a double fist bump. He's going to be like, yeah. Because he's going to know like, like you're, you got him. You got it. And he'll call you William instead of Billy. <laughs> That's that right. That makes no sense at all either. It doesn't. All right. So James in this text is so one, he's just on one thing, favoritism. Yes, the whole section is monolithic. It's one point. He attacks it from different sort of vantage uh, points. And so it's very, um, it's a very poignant text. It cuts to the heart, I think, in so many of us as we really inspect our own lives to see if we have favoritism, partiality, intolerance, bias. Mm -hmm. Those are all synonyms for the, the concept, the main thesis here. Very, very good stuff. And I've noticed in churches, when you try to call somebody out on this, they'll say, well, I, I don't have that. And I think that we need to, I think it would be better for us to say, hey, that's part of the human condition. We all have that from the playground when we're little kids who do you play with who do you not play with who's the in crowd who's the out crowd you go through middle school and you see it and most people are victims of it because the in crowd is pretty small and uh yeah. it either builds your self-esteem or destroys it to experience the, the the dark side of bias but then also to find it in your own lives and one of the things as we jump to the end of the sermon you gave us a very practical thing and say just pray and say lord reveal to me my bias so we're ahead of the game in studying James. So I've been praying that, and God's been opening up, like, yes, yeah, Steve, you're biased against this type of person, this type. And I'm like, no, I'm not. It's like, you are. Yeah. Um, I recently had an experience where we had a guy come forward for prayer um, who uh, the, one of the prayer team members came over and got me even and just said, hey, can you help me? I'm a little over my head. This guy's talking about some serious, um, um, well, gang-related issues, mm -hmm. demonic things. And all, so I came over, and sure enough, this guy had kind of all the trappings of that type of person in our church, and he was just crying out to God for help. And as we talked and prayed, the Lord said, you need to get somebody who relates to this life better into this guy's life immediately. Well, I look around for one of our pastors, one of, you know, and, yeah. and the person who kept walking into my viewfinder was Johnny, who is on our, uh, our, our building maintenance team. And if you know Johnny, you know that when we met Johnny, uh, he was living under the bridge over by In-N-Out Burger in Livermore. He, he's had uh, a t really hard life, and, uh, and now he's on our, our maintenance team. And so, but I kept looking past him for, hey, i got to get somebody mm. more qualified. 
And the Lord kept saying, just John, Johnny will do great. Go get Johnny. And I went over to Johnny. I go, hey, could you put on your pastor hat, your discipler hat? And I thought it would be a real stretch for him. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. He comes over, and immediately he was exactly the person that this guy needed. And the Lord said, see, you were, you were actually biased against one of your own team members. Can you imagine how biased you are against someone of a different, different ethnicity, a different anything? Mm-hmm. And I thought you did well with that pointing out that we tend, the reason we do it is not out of evil intentions, but because we just gravitate towards people we're comfortable around. So Christianity is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Yes, big time. We have to confront ourselves with the reality and the beauty and the magnificence of how Jesus treats us all. And whatever part of us is, is biased, and bias, as you just said, takes on many forms. It's not just racial. It's not just gender. It can be education. It can be just a certain personality type that you don't click with and you write off or you box in. And this is all to be gone from us. It's all to be gone from the church community, and, and we have work to do here. And I love mm-hmm. the story, and we all have our, our versions of that. And I think James does it well because he, uh, he would have heard stories of how Jesus gravitated toward the poor. And James and Jesus grew up in a poor home. We know that Mary and Joseph, at least when they were younger, didn't have a whole lot. And uh, so growing up in that home, he might have known what it was like to have one tunic and one pair of shoes and that kind of thing. Um, Christy, you grew up, uh, you were telling me, you know, would you have defined yourself as poor or different seasons of my life when I was living with just my mom absolutely mm-hmm. even when I was with my dad we were living beyond our means so it was false wealth but uh, definitely um, I'm a recipient of the kindness of the church um, the church fed us quite literally the pastor had a of our local church had a pantry behind his office that he would fill with groceries because my mom and I we lived in a trailer in my best friend's front yard and Definitely I was from the wrong side of the tracks and I always felt so affirmed and welcomed and it did marvelous things for not only my relationship with God, but my future. And Mm. I'm really grateful. What if that pastor had treated you like that, that you and your mom had nothing to offer the church? So he would have been not, because it sounds like you were one of, you guys were his, some of his favorites. I think we may have been. Um, and his name was Pastor Friend. So, you know, it doesn't get any oh. better than that. Uh, you know, I think it may have crushed me. I think it would have affirmed everything the world was already telling me about myself. The things that even my own father and stepmother were telling me about myself that I lacked. And yet he was building us up. Um, I never felt less than there. I always felt like I mattered. And the thing I walked away from that with that I carried through my whole life was that Jesus was my best friend. Oh, Christy, that's so wonderful. And now you're one of the key leaders in the Cornerstone organization. What if no one in the church had ever included you? You would have never seen yourself in that light. Um, Christy, I want you to talk to our church for a minute and tell us how to behave ourselves. Tell us, in light of this text, what could we be and do, and what could we stop being and doing? Does anything come to mind? I think that, honestly, if you treat people the way you wish you were treated, if you were them, and look past the externalities, knowing that there is someone to be cherished deep inside, and you have no idea what they'll do with their life, where, they're go- where they will go or who they will become, you could literally be shaping someone that will reach so many for the kingdom of God. And all it took was your act of kindness and treating them as though they had worth. Wow. 
Amen. Oh, that's so beautiful. We could just wrap it up right there. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, so inside the church, no favoritism. I got. I have your teaching notes, which I'm just going to even be going over as I prepare my sermon for next weekend. Um, do you? Uh, how does it feel to you to think that God has? It says God has chosen the poor. It's really an interesting phrase. I think that you look at God chooses. God, he's in the business of choosing. I mean, this is all throughout Scripture. Uh, there, the Israel was the chosen ones. He chose Jacob over Esau. And, and then when you get to the New Testament, the, the rubric of his choosing changes, it seems like, a little bit. It's not based on sort of family dynamics. It's based on heart dynamics. And certainly poor people uh, in the New Testament were uh, very open to the message and the beauty of the gospel, way more than wealthy people uh, were at the time. And if you actually look at statistics in the church today, it actually holds true as well. The mm-hmm. church is growing in communities and areas where people are marginalized because of the beautiful message that every person is equal in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we're just simply an extension of, of him continuing to choose um, people that want to say yes to him. I, I think that's something we should look at. We really got to take a look at that because in the church, and we were talking about this earlier, a lot of times as pastors, um, our time and attention gets pulled in different directions. And it's sometimes people in the wealthy sort of section of our demographics that would want our time and our attention. And, and, and we understand that because many of them are funding our initiatives and, and the big things that we do ministry-wise. But we just have to be careful that we're not slipping into subtle partiality as we uh, as we lead, mm-hmm. and um, and and we need to remember James two five. God chooses the poor. Wow, that's really cool. You know, um, I had a pretty wealthy person in my church school me about this because I was trying to learn how to um, to to thank the people who had given a lot to the church and to encourage that more. Because as you said, we need millions of dollars to do what we do. And that person said, well, one word that you use, Steve, because I asked him, how can I do this better? And he says, well, I'm glad you asked. One word that you use that makes me really uncomfortable when you describe a person like me is you always say generous. Mm-hmm. And I, well, I said, you are generous. He goes, how do you know? Mm. And I just was stopped. I go, well, because you give a lot. He goes, what's a lot? And he just backed me clear down. And he says, the generous person that Jesus lifted up in the Bible, there was a woman who gave two half pennies. And that was his statement of generosity. So he says, you can't look at a guy like me and say, I'm generous. Compared yeah. to her, I'm not. And he said, I said, well, give me another word to use. He goes, oh, obedient, hmm. faithful, sacrificial. He goes, this is, this is the word that doesn't then prefer me. He says, it actually confronts me. And he said, that's what you have to do with the wealthy is confront them. And you know, James is confronting the wealthy in this text. He does. Yeah, yeah it's so great. Not just here, but in a couple other places as well. Yeah. Um, I think you guys know that I grew up in the Assemblies of God. And the Assemblies of God is a Pentecostal denomination. I think it's the largest Pentecostal denomination. And the roots of the Pentecostal denomination are, are the revivals that took place in the early 1900s, Azusa uh, Street and across the world. And one of the historians tell us that even though everybody wants, wants to talk about how the Azusa Street revivals were about miracles and miraculous things happening, the reality of what held those churches together was it was the first time in American history where the rich and the poor worshiped together. And there were before that, there were poor churches and there were rich churches, high churches, low churches. And he said the Pentecostal movement somehow broke through all. And he said you had very wealthy people and very poor people worshiping in the same church. Mm-hmm. And that was 
the the glue. It wasn't the miracles. It wasn't the. It was that, and uh, I think that would be the glue for Cornerstone as well. If where people who are very different than each other would say, we leave that at the door. We worship together, and then those of us that have more are going to take care of those others that are, that have less. But also those of us that vote a certain way, believe a certain way, are a certain age, body type, skin color, uh, sexual persuasion, and everything where we just say, listen, you are here, you're welcome here, and we want to learn from each other, we want to love each other, and not just hang around with people that we're like. But that's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I love the story and the history. It seems to me that the more that we can get back to the Bible's vision of what the Christian community should look like, the better off we're going to be. I mean, the Pentecostals got it right in 1907 or whenever these... And, 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 and the attributes of those types of churches are so attractional to me. It gives me a vision. It gives me, um, I don't know, a, a target to shoot for in our ministry that is, that is we've, we've got to continue to improve. We've got to continue to allow God's Word to shape us, not only our private, just the thoughts of our own hearts, but as a community together. And I think we're getting there. I think we're learning and growing, but I just want to keep going. I want to keep going, Pastor Steve. Yeah. Uh, you were talking to me about an article you read here in the, was this the Wall Street Journal? Yes. And uh, just let's yes. talk so about that Yes, so this weekend's Wall Street Journal had, um, there's this Ask Dan, who's a behavioral economist. Uh, people write in. Here was one of the, um, the letters to Dan. Hi, I work in an investment banking in a firm where 90% of the employees are men. I'm the only woman on my team, and ever since I joined, my teammates have treated me like the office plant. They make lunch plans without including me. They say hello and goodbye to everyone except me. Generally, they pretend I don't exist. I don't think they're doing it to be hurtful. I just think they're not sure how to befriend women. What can I do to change this? This was just this weekend. So that's not just in the church. That's everywhere. <clears throat> but we can't give ourselves this excuse in the church because— we can't stop there, but that's, I think that's a great example of, I know I got to, I wonder who comes through here that I don't see. Yeah. I, I think we all have this and yeah, to your point, it doesn't just stop when we pull out of the parking lot on weekend service, we have to extend the same mentality, not just amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ, but around and to, to each person that we meet. This is a work application, mm -hmm. and I think this is a real-life thing. Uh, where are we at work? Where are we in the neighborhood? Um, I don't know, not thinking through how to live our faith out in a way that would marginalize someone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so having said that, I talked to uh, a young woman the other day, and she's considering not coming to Cornerstone anymore. And I said, why? And she said, well, because someone that's in leadership in your church posted uh, something I thought was really disrespectful about uh, immigrants. And mm -hmm. uh, she felt that she, as a Christian, as American, she had the right to say certain things and to forward certain things, that I'm her sister in Christ and I'm an immigrant. And she said, for the most part, most Americans, if they're not Native Americans or Mexican Americans, they are immigrants. And she said, it just took me back. And she said, so I, I privately messaged her and said, you mean immigrants like me? Because I know this person. And she goes, well, no, not, not like you. And she goes, well, how would I have known that had I not asked you? And she said, unfortunately, we didn't have that satisfying of a conversation. What I heard was her political viewpoint about what's going on on our southern border. And she said, I don't, I don't know if I can attend a church where that kind of thing is not called out. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
So here James is calling it out. And so I'm calling it out. Cornerstone, you've got to be careful what you say because people are listening to you and you're never off duty as a Christian or as a member of Cornerstone. And so let's have the church that where people do feel welcome and, uh, and loved. Yeah. So um, I want to say, have you, have you, you said you saw progress. You, you're seeing progress in Cornerstone. I think we're seeing progress. I think but so. as an older white guy, I think the way you're we're an gonna, older white man. Thank I'm you. a younger white. Man. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Uh, everyone says that about us, uh, <laughs> at least about me. But um, how would we know if we were making progress? I think we should ask the people that were. Do you feel favored now? Do you feel that this church gives you the grace that Christy and her mom got? I think part of it is we look at who who's coming through our doors. I see a definite shift in the demographics of our church in Brentwood. And that also is reflective of a changing community. Our community demographics are changing, and we want to reflect our community. And I would say that our church is beginning to reflect our community. And so we see different shapes, sizes, skin tones every week, and it's so beautiful. And we're seeing people that don't look like me serving and that is the first step of showing I'm feeling embraced in this community. You see conversations between people that look <clears throat> nothing alike. And I love that. We have leaders that don't look the same as Billy and myself. And I also love that. And so I think that as long as we we can't force something that doesn't exist in our community, but we should definitely be reflecting the community God has placed us in. Mm -hmm. And I think we're beginning to do that. And so that's really encouraging to me. And we're beginning to do it because it's better. It's Absolutely. not because we're trying to meet That's some quota or something. It's like, no, every person brings a value and, a, and mm -hmm. to, to what we have and makes us better. Absolutely. And that's the kingdom of God coming to earth. Yeah. Here's what we learn in seminary. We learn that no culture on this planet is favored before God. All cultures, all races have areas of strength and weakness, have areas of goodness and areas that need to be redeemed equally. And so if that's what God's heart is for the world, then our church needs to reflect that. Hmm. And I love that. That's a, that's, heaven is going to be a very multicultural place. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we might as well get used to that now because we're going to spend a lot of time there. So let's practice here. And learn to enjoy it, for Pete's sake, and not yes. say, oh, we're doing this because we should. You know, Dr. King was the one that said that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the American uh, experience. And I think the fact that we are trying to come against that in every way, and, and that means people that are in leadership in our church have got to be of all colors and both genders, and uh, mm -hmm. people on the stage, and people making the decisions. And when we communicate that, then we communicate, okay, your tribe is welcome here, and we're all one tribe. And uh, so, well, I thought this was a great weekend. Is there anything else that you would want to uh, add as we conclude this time? Well, I'll say one last thing. Um, when Billy and I were in college, the church that we attended, our lead pastor was Caucasian, our worship pastor was Asian, our associate pastor was Latino, and our campus pastor was African-American. 
And that totally shaped us for the better, that we had all these voices speaking into our life. And I didn't know church was any different until I grew up and moved out and was like, what's wrong with this church? It's too white. Uh But that was such a wonderful experience for us to have that has forever shaped us. And everyone needs to have that experience. It's just better. Amen. Amen. Well, this is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure and tell your friends uh, to tune in on YouTube. Uh, I think this is a really great way where you either attend on the weekend or you watch the sermon and then uh, you participate in this. And a further thing that you could do is to make sure that you're in conversation in a community group. Community groups really are uh, the lifeblood of the church. The weekends are great, but if you're not in a community group, if you're not talking with each other, praying with each other, crying with each other, laughing with each other, then you're not a church yet. To attend on a Sunday just makes you a spectator. To really get involved is to be in a community group uh, where you are known and loved and you're missed when you're not there. So I encourage any of you that are watching that still are not in a community group, this is your season, this is your year to get into relationship at Cornerstone. And uh, we encourage you to draw others in as well. And with that, we're going to say goodbye. Thanks for watching.